This is Cowboys on the Commons, the podcast about cooperative economics, politics, law, and culture. My name is Matt, and don't I feel behind schedule? We haven't done a Cowboys episode for quite some time, and I was looking forward to turning this one around quickly back at the end of August after I talked to Chris Richards of Political Hack and Slash about our disagreements around fascism. But the best laid plans for putting a podcast out ran into day jobs, a lot of parental maintenance in this COVID and school clusterfuck, and the day-to-day challenges of keeping our commune running. And so, while I grew more and more despondent about getting the episode out in a timely manner, I also got to see the material around our disagreement, a disagreement about fascism, keep growing. And so, I wrote a long post at the Cowboys on the Commons website that we'll link to in our show notes, and it's a good companion piece to this friendly disagreement that I'm having on this episode with Chris. Before we get into that, however, we need to pause for a moment so that I can pay revolutionary respects to my friend Kevin Zeese, who passed away a couple of days ago unexpectedly. Around 11 years ago, when I hadn't been podcasting very long, and the medium was still a little wild west, I had arranged to have Margaret Flowers on my show to talk about grassroots activism and civil disobedience happening over single-payer at the time. This was at the beginning of the fight for what eventually became the ACA, and there was energy around how quickly Obama had dismissed single-payer options. He was making what he and his neoliberal advisors undoubtedly saw as an early strategic concession, maybe as a sign that he'd make many more concessions, although I suspected that they thought they were performing some kind of policy debate judo. Anyway, there was a lot of energy, including for street demonstrations, congressional office occupations, sit-ins, other direct action. I had never met Margaret, but I knew who she was. I think she mentioned the possibility that Kevin might pop in during the interview, but we proceeded along having a really good intricate discussion about healthcare policy and the frustrations of working with the Democratic leadership. We talked about the importance of direct action. Sometime during that interview, in burst Kevin. I say burst because he was a gigantic force the moment he entered the conversation. He was somewhere north of enthusiastic, but not quite aggressive, and certainly not in an unpleasant way. He immediately established his presence as a strategist, cheerleader, and orator. He was all of those things at once, and remained so, in my view, every time I saw him work for the next decade, which I was fortunate enough to experience a number of times. What followed between then and now was actually a really sweet association with Margaret and Kevin. Lots of mutual friends and colleagues, lots of strategy sessions and public events. The pleasure of watching them help out people I was close to and cared about in political and issue advocacy campaigns, and even a little bit of solicited advice to me from Kevin on my legal education and its application to policy advocacy. Kevin was a damn good lawyer on top of everything else he did, and I knew I probably wouldn't litigate with my JD, but listening to him helped me figure out the countless ways a legal education would help me with my own. Kevin and I didn't agree about some things. He stuck with the Green Party while I've taken the DSA path in earnest, and I'm less hesitant to work with Democrats than he is. 
We never saw each other enough to fight about any of that. I think we may have uttered a few clarifying, very friendly words back and forth about such positions. His website, Popular Resistance, reposted some of my articles, and I was always grateful for the collaboration. We co-occupied a lot of public banking space, and I'm so glad that Kevin got to see the recent advances that the public banking movement has made, fueled in no small part by the kind of confrontational, well-organized political style he championed. Kevin didn't care if his opinions rubbed allies and fellow travelers the wrong way. But he never said anything to hurt people's feelings. Everything he said and all the work he did was to push forward an agenda against power and in favor of egalitarianism. He saw the hundreds of ways capitalism kills and degrades us and tried to help push back in as many different ways as he could, always working with others, always seeking to amplify other voices, and using his own naturally amplified voice. He wanted to build a new world from the old, and we're closer to it for his loving work. Much love, Margaret, and thanks for everything, Kevin. Safe travels, comrade. And now for my conversation with Chris Richards of Political Hack and Slash. This occurred because of a little argument we had on Twitter, an argument we both still think we're right about. Chris believes that it's meaningless to distinguish between the violence of centrist neoliberal capitalist politicians like Joe Biden and the more vociferous, nationalistic, openly racist administrations like that of Donald Trump. Chris would call them both fascist. I disagree. I would call Trump's ground incipient fascism turning into full-blown fascism, and I would maintain a distinction between that and what Biden and Clintonism offer us, neoliberal capitalist managerialism that uses fascism as a threat against economic justice reform. And I think the distinction is important. Chris, not so much. It's obviously more complicated than that, of course, which I hope you'll catch in our discussion. I ultimately disagree with Chris while appreciating many of the perspectives he brought to our discussion that I hadn't fully realized before. I disagree that Trump's fascism is anachronistic. It's being deployed to silence protest in a way that we did not see in the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, and 2010s in quantity, if not in quality. If you like this content and all of the rest of uh, the people that we listen to, the causes we cover, the activities we report on, and the issues we raise on the Solidarity House network of podcasts, please support us at patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. We make all our major content available for free, so please help us keep doing that by becoming a patron today with a donation as low as five bucks a month. And now, my discussion with Chris Richards of Political Hack and Slash about fascism. Yeah, and I'm here with uh, Chris Richards, uh, who is uh, a co-host of the Political Hack and Slash program. And Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about the show? Well, I host it with my, my friend Niall Elkham, who's, I'm up in Portland. He's down in Orange County, California, so we're both on the West Coast. Uh, you can follow me at Eclectic Radical on Twitter. You can follow Niall at Niall Elkham on Twitter. And our show is on the Niall Elkham versus the World YouTube channel. 
And you can also always find the most recent episode on my pinned tweet. Great. What are some of the uh, issues that you cover or kind of what, what, what are some of the distinct directions that you've taken on the show? Uh, well, our show is basically a, a, a weekly political discussion show with sometimes the two of us in the chat room and, and some of us, and sometimes the two of us and a, a guest or two in the chat room. Mostly we talk about whatever's really bugging us that night and the, the issues of the week as we remember them. Uh, a fan described the show as a bunch of friends sitting on the porch and talking about how to make the world a better place. And I know that what kind of brought us uh, together was a, a disagreement, a friendly disagreement, I think, on electoral politics or somewhat related to electoral politics in the left. Um, and I wanted to ask, do you feel like the left pays too much attention to presidential elections or, or do you feel like the executive branch is important and that maybe symbolically and materially there might be important things at stake in presidential elections? So yes and no and yes. Uh, it's complicated, like a lot of things, I guess. Whose president is important because the president sets the tone for the country, good or bad. And we're seeing just how much, how awful it can feel when that tone is a really bad one. Even when what the president does isn't always as bad as it feels like it is, though I'm not saying it's not bad, it's pretty bad. Even when it isn't as bad as it feels, the president sets the tone for the country and a bad tone makes everybody feel bad. And a good tone can make people feel better. And that's all important. And the president sets the budget, which then Congress debates and argues about and votes on. And that's important. And of course, the president has a huge amount of power in appointments and foreign policy, which is terribly important. But Congress makes the laws. The president can't pass health care. The president can't pass uh, constitutional amendments by himself or, or change the law by himself. And so I do think that it can be a mistake to focus too much on the presidency and nothing else, just as a question of, of tactics and strategy. I am no, by no means a Democrat partisan, but if you look at what President Obama essentially did to the Democratic Party at every other electoral level except presidents to gain and keep the White House, you have to wonder if it was worth it to the Democrats. It definitely wasn't worth it to the more left part of the Democratic Party, and I think most progressives agree these days. And we're in a period of, of deep alienation um, among the left, including members of the left that identify still as Democrats. Uh, and I know one, uh, one tweet that someone dropped on our thread, or one of the threads that you and I were having this discussion on, um, was that under Biden, we won't die slower. Uh, is well, that, is that mean, where you're at? Is that where you're at? Do you, I mean, do you believe that? I'm because I know that so, a lot of other people on the thread agreed with that. So I, we, there's always an element of hyperbole 
in any sort of electoral political discussion. It's an amount of hyperbole that may not be there in a year that's not an election year, if you know what I mean. Um, I don't know to what degree we don't die faster with, we don't die slower with Biden. I don't know to what degree we really die faster with Trump. There's a lot of speculation there. And while you can say that certain things are definitely setting bad precedents and trends on the horizon, stuff like that has happened before. Uh, most people think of Eisenhower retrospectively as like the good Republican. But I'm going to apologize for using a bad word here. It's what the INS called it at the time. Under Eisenhower, California, New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas were devastated by what he what the INS called Operation Wetback. Right. Which was a massive roundup, uh, lockup, and deportation of Mexican migrant workers who did not have green cards in the American Southwest. It was a huge thing. Uh, it, it was really, really, really devastating to, to people in Southern California. We don't remember it now, and we think of Eisenhower as one of the good Republicans. What Trump is doing on the border isn't profoundly new. And only real difference between what Trump has been doing on the border and what Obama was doing on the border is one of the amount of noise made about it, the degree to which Democrats have pretended to care under Trump in a way they didn't pretend to care under Obama, and the fact that Trump has made a political show out of it, whereas Obama wanted to depoliticize it and make it go away. And what he wanted to politicize were things more like DACA. Do you think at the end of the day, I mean, some people might argue that uh, it, they might even, some people might even say that it's better uh, that the brutality of the system, which certainly exists under both parties, um, is brought to light and brought sort of brought to bear, uh, which is a kind of accelerationist sort of position. Um, which is that what I don't, at? I'm not an accelerationist. I do think it is good, and I don't mean good for anybody specific. I sure. think it is good that a lot of this stuff is being talked about when it wasn't before. I think it is good that we had major Democratic senators protesting outside immigration jails. I think that sends a huge message that makes it hard for some of these people to ignore if some of this stuff happens again under a Democratic president. So I think that's good, too. I think it is bad whenever more people are harmed than were being harmed before. I think Trump is a horrible human being. I despise Trump. I want to be rid of Trump. But my biggest concern about Biden is that Biden doesn't really have a problem so much with Trump, what Trump is doing as with 
specific kind of showmanship that Trump affects. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it also makes it seem like it, it might make it seem like, you know, sort of my beef with the use of the term fascism to describe uh, the, the power structures that are shared by both parties right now um, that, you know, that I had a problem with that. Um, that was it might be might sound pedantic and you know kind of uh, like I was you know sort of shoegazing a little bit in in complaining about it. So I wanted to ask you, what is your definition of, of fascism, and how is fascism different than other kinds of authoritarianism? Well, I mean, when you really come down to it. Fascism is a specific structure of political and economic power that focuses on collectivization from the wrong direction. Uh, fascism equates the state with the people, and as a result, tends to equate the rightful citizens of the state with a race. And tends to scapegoat anybody in the country, especially citizens or recent immigrants who are not a member of the quote unquote true race, and scapegoats them for problems that the government isn't solving for people. That's that's the sort of pure Hitlerite fascism that we're all used to. In a simpler form in, with Mussolini, fascism is just essentially corporate power in the, in the form of a dictator who has a close relationship with the, with the, 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 big, the big business people of the country taking over and bringing them into the government in a way that makes the economy serve their interests. It was it, the the nationalism was an economic and military nationalism that did not assume quite the racial eliminationist uh, tones that we think of with Hitler, and was focused primarily on restoring Italy to an imagined past greatness by letting the economic elite and the dictate and the military elite run things without those annoying politicians in the way. I'm thinking of one feature uh, of fascism, or at least as, as, as I've conceived of it, um, that is shared by the Italian fascists, uh, the, the Germans, the Nazi party, um, and was shared by fascist movements in the United States in the 30s, uh, and is also shared by the Trump administration or Trump Trump's own rhetoric. And that is this glorification of violence and particularly this glorification of street violence and really kind of low level interpersonal violence. Uh, it, it seems like fascists fold that into their ideology and sort of the performance of that violence being something so, really important. So I'm going to disagree here. I'm not going to say that the violence isn't important. The violence is tremendously important, and, and later we'll probably end up 
hitting very directly on how I relate that to, to our government. But a lot of the political violence in Italy and Germany at the time was a function of the politics. The local political parties had street gangs and those street gangs got into brawls and that was a normal part of the Italian politics of the time and was rapidly became a normal part of the Weimar German politics of the time as various groups on the right and left began to square off with each other. It didn't start with Hitler either. Um, one of the military commanders of World War I not Hindenburg, um, the gentleman who was eventually put in command of the entire Western Front, who was Hindenburg's partner for a long time, whose name escapes me, uh, and who ended up being one of Hitler's sponsors, put together a paramilitary group to restore the monarchy even before the Nazis formed. Um, groups like that related to, to what we would now refer to as the mafia had been part of Italian politics since, since Italy had started to have more democratic politics. Um, so Hitler and Mussolini were creatures of their political environment who, had, who adopted that violence because that was a big part of the politics of the time. Now, they made it very, very important to their movements, and they were very good at it, and they organized people for violence in a way that their political opponents didn't, and it was sort of an escalation. But it was essentially an escalation in an existing struggle that simply took it to another level and swept the opposition away. It wasn't an innovation, it was an escalation. Uh, the American groups in the 30s, remember, the 30s was also a time with a great deal of union violence and what people would call left-wing violence. Uh, the Teamsters in the 30s were firebombing employers who weren't following the rules. Those were the days. Uh, <laughs> if only the Teamsters had that kind of fighting spirit now, right? But, but jokes aside... There was a lot of political violence in the 30s that gets fluffed over because we're talking about America and we're not and, and the Great Depression and Roosevelt's heroism in the New Deal. And we're not talking about America firsters. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right. America right. firsters getting in a fight with socialists at 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 labor at labor action strikes and counter strikes happened in, all the time listen to those old timers talking about those oh we were having a labor forum and you know first we had to deal with these goons uh, mm -hmm. outside of the outside of the labor hall that wanted to beat the shit out of us and so our goons had to beat the shit out of their goons for us to be able to have our meeting is how that story ends or not, or not. yeah labor people get beat up and go to jail right and that was the politics of the time, which we don't talk about. We dwell on the violence of fascists, and we do not dwell on the overall violence of, politic, of the politics. And why is that? It's because it stigmatizes fascists and makes them something unique and scary and special, which I think is the danger. If fascism is always 
something worse than what's happening now, then it becomes an academic question. We'll never decide it's time to do something about fascism. I definitely agree that the rhetoric of, of making, you know, this, this sort of threat and the threat of uh, tying this current administration to that, you know, to, to, to this manifestation of fascism does perpetually defer those questions and says always that there is this, the immediacy in the immediacy of this moment, uh, then we have to, you know, this is an emergency. This time yeah. is an emergency. Um, and but people will say, the well, they, said that, about Bush, they said that about, you know, other, other Republican presidents. But honestly, those Republican presidents did not call for open street violence the way that this particular figure has. And I do think they didn't, he, they didn't call for it. However, the Minutemen were operating as an unofficial branch of the immigration department. Well, I'm sorry, the Border Patrol the whole time Bush was president. They didn't talk about that the way Trump talks about it, but they did it. And I think that maybe one thing that is that one difference of opinion that we have is maybe the importance of that, of the fact that it is called for and talked about versus uh, so versus it being an under the versus the violence being this underlying part of liberal democracy so that can always be shoved aside or always be hidden. This is where we're always going to have. This is where I think we may have our biggest difference because what's actually happening is not fundamentally different from what has happened in the past, even at times under democratic presidents. Uh, it was under Barack Obama that, that black people and and people of, of Middle Eastern extraction were being set up by the FBI to be seduced into committing terrorist acts so the FBI could kill them. Um, this stuff is being noticed under Trump because Trump is a classless boor who says out loud all of the things that the political and economic elite keep behind closed doors. They talk about this stuff among themselves. They don't use Trump's language, but they talk about this stuff among themselves. They don't want us to hear it because they don't want us to think of them the way we think of Trump. But that's the whole thing, is that the reason they're hiding it is they, have, they don't have to take over the system the way Trump thinks he does. They're already the system. They don't have to have a movement because they already run things. Trump, even though Trump is very much an establishment, an establishment figure in many of his actual policy decisions, his rhetoric and actions are very daytime television. And that, that makes snobs dislike him. But the snobs who dislike him are not any less inclined to do the same things. When we go back to maybe more classical or old school definitions of fascism, um, and I'm thinking of the, the one at, at the glossary at marxist.org, where 
there's kind of, kind of a list that includes things like, uh, you know, strong mysticism and religious elements to fascism and strong uh, anti-modernism um, and, uh, and an anti-equality, including in, in rhetoric. Uh, oh. This sort of open embrace of hierarchy that the Democrats purport to the, not believe in. And the obviously they're, they're obviously at the level of the DNC and the level of, of, of particularly the, you know, the right side of the democratic party. Obviously that's hypocrisy, but, well, so but it's, but it's being uttered on one end of the spectrum and it's not being uttered on the well, other end of the spectrum. The and again, Democrats do embrace hierarchy. But they don't. The Democrats. But they purport to not embrace hierarchy. racial hierarchy, or uh, you know, they yes, in they fact do. embrace identity politics in its in this sort of impotent bourgeois form. <clears throat> but no. But you have the Democrats you know, do. The Democrats do embrace racial hierarchy. It's just tremendously coded. Well, I think that's it's more the, coded that's than the, the Republicans. And it's more, and it's, and it's a true dog whistle in that if you don't really know what you're listening for, you don't hear it, but it's there. And it's when the, it's the, it's the way the Democrats entirely stopped talking about the poor or the working class and started talking exclusively about the middle class. The last Democrat, the, the, the last Democrat to talk about the poor at all was John Edwards, and it was such a big deal that Bill Maher talked about it back when we all thought Bill Maher was a good guy, or at least pretended to. Yeah, um, I, I drank that Kool-Aid as well at one time. And uh, he made a big deal. In fact, when John Edwards' scandal happened and, and his political career was over, Bill Maher was kind of, you know, it's... It's bad that he kept a secret wife, but this means nobody's going to talk about the poor anymore. And fortunately, Bernie Sanders came along. Between John Edwards and LBJ, how many Democrats talked about the working class and not the middle class? I think that, for me, under, understanding that distinction or acknowledging that distinction, that one side performatively celebrates racism and violence and the other side hides it is an important distinction that leads me to want to distinguish between fascism on one side and what I would call neoliberal capitalism and uh, but that's a false on the other side and I think that's understanding that but, but go with me here Understanding that distinction is, to me, key to understanding how liberal, neoliberal capitalism creates the conditions for fascism, and and in some to some extent relies on those conditions for exactly what you said, which is scaring people into accepting the most conservative and the most right wing policies and candidates that are put in front of them. But Nevertheless, I still think that that distinction is necessary in order to explain how that dynamic works. I because think that, that because distinction... the social democrats in Germany were the ones who enabled the fascists, but they were not the fascists. They were enablers of the fascists. Well, the people the people who really enabled the fascists were the conservative monarchists. Um, I can't remember the name of the party. Franz von Papen and uh, Hindenburg 
and someone else whose name escapes me, they were the, the leader of the most conservative party. They actually wanted to bring the Kaiser back. Uh, and they had been repeatedly beaten by, various, by the Social Democrats and various other left coalitions. And they finally, finally came very close to winning. But because of the Nazi vote, they didn't have a majority and they needed a coalition government. And so their coalition government was to make Hindenburg president, von Papen prime minister, and Hitler chancellor. And that ended out very badly for the conservatives, which is what happened, which is what just happened to the Republican Party with Trump. And I'll give you that. However, the difference is, is that Hitler was taking over an existing system which did not have a traditional order behind it. This is important. What made Hitler, the fascism of Weimar Germany and the fascism of the 21st century US can't be the same because the environment for them is different. Weimar Germany was a very, very young republic. Remember they had been, they had been an empire under the Kaiser up until World War I. And even at the time of World War I, they were a very young empire. Before that, the Kaiser had been the king of Prussia. There was not, there was not a deeply held political tradition in Germany, except for a sort of crony conservatism felt practiced by the, the military and the, the upper class. And that was sort of an anti-capitalist, pro-authoritarian conservatism that ultimately lent itself very well to Hitler. Mm -hmm. When they realized they couldn't have the Kaiser back, they accepted Hitler. And there wasn't a deep democratic tradition Germany, World War I ended because of a socialist revolution, but the Social Democrats teamed up with the army and the, the capitalists to kill the, the socialists, socialist revolutionaries uh, in the end and to institute a liberal democracy instead. There was never, it didn't take deep roots until after World War II and with the direct sponsorship of the United States. And because it didn't take root, Hitler's movement was what it was, which was one to dominate the political field and overthrow the, the existing state to create a new one. In our system, capitalist power is not threatened the same way. The movement towards fascism has been slow, gradual, and even, as much as I hate to say it, has had the forms of democracy behind it. Trump's sort of outsider fascism is anachronistic because we are already, we are already run, essentially, by corporate boards of directors who have immense power over large swathes of our life with an increasingly ineffectual government that does their bidding. 
And while it's an inversion, the private sector is wielding that power instead of the state, state violence is what sustains that private sector power. And in American fascism, state violence means police. And, and we already have a system by which the political violence is done on the populace by the police to influence pseudo-democratic decision-making to elect the most conservative law and order people possible. Because people are always afraid, afraid of whoever the police is hurting and not the police themselves. Do you, and by people, sure. I mean the white middle class. And do you see the deployment of non-police, you know, sort of extra legal militias? And I know that most police actions in this context are also extra legal in a different way. Oh, and the, but, the extra legal but militias. Where, but where, where do the militias come in other than, I mean, and I get that they have infiltrated many of these police forces, but there is this, no. there is also no. this other part. Infil infiltration is the wrong way to look at it. Infiltration assumes that the police force is somehow hostile to these groups and that they have to somehow sneak inside. That is a wrong viewpoint. It is an incorrect assumption. The police encourage these groups. Most of the police sympathize with these groups. They just, they just, for the second time in 10 years, they just exposed another bunch of white supremacist street gangs in a Southern California city that were actually LA County Sheriff's deputies. Right. So it's not, that the Proud Boys have infiltrated the police. It's that the police are the Proud Boys when the Proud Boys are off duty. The police are off duty Proud Boys and the Proud Boys are off duty cops or unofficial cops. Most police forces have what is called a reserve, who are people that they call to help them in situations where they need extra manpower. In most cities, that reserve is almost entirely white supremacist. Well, I well I have to give you that, uh, and I think that that's a a helpful way uh, to look at the sort of intrinsic characteristics of American policing that really makes it already sort of already yes. that ground uh, you know, on, upon which um, the the far right can walk, and and it's not new under Trump. I live in Portland. Portland has a notoriously awful police department with notoriously close relationships with white supremacists. I have a friend who lives in Salem. Their police department has the same problem. It goes back for years. Let me ask you a different question. Let, let me jump ahead a little bit and ask what if, if Biden wins, uh, and let's say if uh, if down ballot electoral progress is also made um, that 
gives the Democrats a few more seats of power uh, after this election. Does that violence and that the things that have been exposed in the last four years that maybe have been hidden from many people's eyes, does that go back underground? Does that, is that swept back under the rug or uh, is there a new consciousness that of, of the blatancy uh, of, you know, this kind of institutional violence? That's really the question. I don't pretend to know. One of the reasons that I am so firm about talking about Biden truthfully as I see it is I would like to prevent that from happening if possible. I'm sure not enough people listen to me for me to do it single-handedly, but it's the sort of thing that I like to think if you know enough people listen to me and start talking about it too, maybe more people will notice and it'll spread that way. It has to start somehow. But if more people look critically at Biden that way and consider his career in the framework of the thread that I spelled out, okay, this is one definition of fascism. Look, arguably he hits all the boxes. I think that's useful. And if enough people look critically at him after seeing things like that, maybe it doesn't go back into the shadows. But I know there are a lot of people who were, who were diehard Bernie people who are absolutely convinced that if Biden wins, that as the as people like to say on Twitter, uh, all the the Hillary Biden people will just go back to brunch and won't pay attention and won't be politically engaged anymore. I see some encouraging reasons why that might not happen: building independent organizations, uh, building socialist organizations, including ones that um, you know are neither in nor outside of the Democratic Party. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, for many people, uh, the last four years really has been sort of an interruption of their party uh, or a, a sort of airing of dirty laundry in front of their, you know, uh, out their parlor windows. Well, that's, that's really, to, to, to a large extent, what we have seen under Bush under Obama, and especially at an accelerated rate under Trump, is how incompetent that our elites really are, how our Wall Street elites are really not much smarter and may not be as smart as small business people who, whose lives are in their hands rather than other people's money. We've seen that our military elite may not be as smart as gorillas hiding in caves despite all their arrogance and technology. We see that our corporate elite may not really be good at anything but increasing their own profits at the expense of the people who, who buy their products and do the work for them. There's been a lot of discrediting of elites in general and that's both good and bad it's good because hey nothing nothing potentially builds egalitarianism like realizing that your elites aren't anything special 
but it's also dangerous because it people who believe they're more competent see opportunities to replace them. And that's where you get the sort of Trumpian outsider fascism. But the reason it's crumbling like that in the first place is because there's already an insider crypto fascism, if you like, that that is already doing many of the things that anger us and terrify us when Trump does them. I mean, Standing Rock didn't happen under Trump. I always think about Honduras. Um, Honduras, as, Ferguson. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think about, I, obviously Ferguson and Standing Rock are closer to home for, you know, so many of us in, in the United States. But what I think, when I think about Honduras, I, it always occupies this special place in my heart because it is, to me, this, this really good example of uh, how for many liberals, uh, violence happening far away is okay. Yes. Yes, no, that's, that's a great example. It's also an example of how we have no problem putting real, actual Hitler-style fascists in power in other countries when it serves our own purposes. And if those people work for us, doesn't that make us fascist too? Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about in these questions, uh, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, we've been talking to Chris Richards. Uh, he is Eclectic Radical on Twitter, and he is the co-host of Political Hack and Slash. Uh, and uh, again, it's been great to have you on. Thanks, Matt. It's been great to be on, and I really enjoyed it.